Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. that music as it fades into the background. You are on 3 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I, I'm very well. I'm just, I'm just admiring these the red lights here. That, that, oh, no, we're a bit excited. When we're on air. I There's new about, shiny, flashy things in the studio I, I thought we were us. about to self-destruct. I did read that this week and I thought, oh, look at that. And it is flashy, shiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a big show today too. We've got a whole bunch of stuff on. Dave Rastovich is going to come and talk to us about um, Protect Australia's Ocean for Good, which is a very interesting little Patagonia thing that's happening. Uh, when I say little, I mean largish. Yeah, at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne um, this week on yeah. Thursday night, I believe it is. Or Wednesday. Dave's going to come in and fill us in. He will. On what that's about. Yeah. And then you, the, the, you've been doing a lot of people who swim in the ocean? Uh, open ocean swimmers. I was chastised by one of our long-time listeners, Dick Williams, during the week because it, yeah, he said that Radio Marinara doesn't talk about open ocean swimming. Well, and, and indeed we don't a lot in my 15 years. I hear I can probably think of mentioning it once. Anyway, we, we have um, Dick Williams on the line from, from Phillip Island at mm-hmm. around oh, just before the half hour telling us about um, swimming the rip. And then <laughs> the swimming the rip. Yeah, and, and, uh-huh. and, and then we've got wow. a, we've got a little surprise right Ooh, here in the studio, we? and I'm, yeah. I'm going to save it for them. But Ooh. we have Australia's Australia's very own channel swimmer, 
Don oh. Reddington, who oh. is the the oldest Australian to ever swim the Channel back in 2013. The and Channel. He, and, and he's t- the Channel when being... When you the, say the Channel, you uh, mean la, the la, one, the, la the English one. Wow, okay. That's right, the English Channel. Goodness me. And, and, and most recently, he has been in part of a six-man relay team, which has spun the Channel, and that is the oldest bunch of blokes to swim the channel collectively. All of them plus oh. or minus 80 years old. So, so in the middle of the show, old blokes swimming in large, big oceans. Yeah. Yep. I cannot wait. Got to love it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, it has actually been a very long time since we've had ocean swimmers. The last one would have been, what was her name that swam the channel? Yeah. A long time ago. It would be a very long time ago. Anyway, yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Hey, and then we don't often talk about law on this program. And it's partly because we're all scientists. <laughs> we know nothing <laughs> That's about right. it. Yeah, we, 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 with lawyers, we tend to. We go, oh. Yeah, but law, it's, lawyers can be good. It's possibly also because it's hard to find lawyers. Like sometimes it's hard to find scientists that speak English. It's hard to find lawyers that speak English. Yep. And I'm, I met one this week. And I've been talking about climate change, you know, oh, well, what, well how long have we been? This 27 years of this show? I've been talking about climate change. And... Um, and sea level rise. And, of course, the science is one thing. And the science for stuff to change has to get into law. So I met Professor Jan MacDonald this week, who is a professor of environmental and climate law, who has, ta- has had a look at is the science making it into law. If we're going to be, you know, have coastal adaptation, marine adaptation, how, do you, how does it happen in law? Yeah, it's very funny. interesting, very fascinating. Little dip into the law. Well, of course, you've had lots of lobbying, I guess, and then you've got to get the parliamentarians to say, "Yeah, all right." Yeah, no, but then how does it make it in law? Like, what is in law? That's really interesting, and mm. how different it is, yes, and what yes, you know, yes, what yes, the words yes, might yes, mean, and because bl- lawyers bl- like blown my tiny mind already. There you go. So we're going to finish up the show with a bit of that. Hey, we have a giveaway. Doing we? Have a giveaway. Yeah. So get ready on your keyboards, people, because of course you've got to go to rrr.org.au to be able to enter this giveaway. And it's very cool. At the MTC presents A Very Jewish Christmas Carol <laughs> by Lise Esterhurst and Philip Cabanar. And it's on kind of, you know, the month starting Monday, I think, you know, next week, uh, the 14th Tuesday. Commission developed through MTC's um, Next Stage Writers Program. A Very Jewish Christmas Carol is a writer's retelling of Charles Dickens' classic tale, taking audiences on a wild and laugh-out-loud journey through a familiar, festive and spirited time. There you go. So there, if you are a subscriber and you would like to go along, go to rrr.org.au, enter the competition. We've got a few double passes to give away. Do not ring because we don't have any, but go online. Yeah, we won't, we won't pick up. Um, this will be for Thursday week, so Thursday the 16th at 7.30. Okay. We've got one double pass. Hey, i got some news from Cliff. Oh, have he, you? He's, he's almost at Davis, so Cliff, our Antarctic yeah, yeah, correspondent, yeah, yeah. Um, is at the moment on the ship. Um, just off Davis, he says, Morning, we're still doing Morning. ice trials, Morning. waiting to get to work. Uh, there's a picture there of a few penguins uh, oh. on the shelf, and we oh. can see um, an aerial picture of the – well, it's kind of like a cartoon of the ship, which mm. is not far from Davis. No. Can't see exactly how far. Uh, but he sent us the um, the all-important statistics, that is the um, the sea temperature at the moment, where oh, it is yeah. this 0.15 degrees Celsius. Sorry? Sorry, it is 0. 0.15. 0. So it's 15. less than one. Uh no, zero point one five. Yeah, so less than one degree. Point well, less than one. one yeah, yeah, I'm so, so just, just above zero. zero. Just above zero. Oh. Just, just, just a tweak above zero. Wow. Um, off the um, starboard side of the ship, it's twelve point seven degrees. Off the 
port side of the ship, it's 13 degrees. Oh, air temperature. Air, oh, temp- the air temperature. It's slightly different. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, Cliff, for seeing that in. Yeah, lovely. And beautiful picture of the penguins. We'd love to know what you're doing. Speaking of Antarctica, a yes. uh, little concerning bit of news, well, little. Uh, the bird flu virus, H5N1, um, is running rampant in South America. Oh, it has now yeah, made it to this. South Georgia Island. Um, there are skewers there, dead skewers, the British Antarctic Survey have observed in the past couple of weeks. So the deep concern now is, of course, that this will get to Antarctica itself. Uh, and be very bad for all the birds down there. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. And it's wonderful to... It's been a long time, actually, since we've had Dave Rastovich on the line um, and we welcome him back. Um, this time, don't, so having a chat about Patagonia's Protect Australia's Ocean for Good. Now, for those that don't know, Dave Rastovich is a Patagonia's global sport activist co-host of the Water People podcast, um, you know, a bit of a renowned free surfer, frankly, and a campaign leader against a bunch of stuff that are threats to the ocean. And he is an, a co-founder of Surfers for Cetaceans, and he joins us online from a very wet north in New South Wales. G'day, Dave. How are you? <laughs> Good morning, mate. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Good um, to be here. Yeah, no, it's great. Welcome back. And look, if there's a big event um, coming up on Wednesday, the eighth at the Capitol Theatre here in Melbourne. Great lineup of speakers, even some music. So tell us what's going to happen on the night. Yeah, mate, it's it's actually looking like a really fun night. You know, as water people, the only thing that really um, compares to being in the water is talking about being in the water, <laughs> which is <laughs> always fun. You know, I think. Uh, Fishers have always got fish tails and stories of, of the one that got away and, and whatever, and, and surfers are the same when it comes to surf. But so are, so are all people who have some kind of relationship with um, the water, and, and really that's all of us. You know, I think we've all had moments in our life that are um, really pivotal or moments that are, are full of magic and awe and wonder. And, and I, I think really at the centre of um, these events that we're putting on, is is that is that dynamic is that um understanding and that sharing that we we are so reliant upon the ocean and yes we we have all the science the western science to to back up how um how interrelated our health and the ocean's health is but also there is that just that feeling that's that sense of belonging that we get when we are near a body of water and and certainly Surfers are canaries in the coal mine when it comes to the ill health of the oceans. We we really feel it in our bodies when that water isn't right, and uh, and so yeah, mate, it's, it's going to be a really fun night of great speakers, like you said, and and art too. Uh, a lot of artful moments through mm. film and music and performance. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's um, I'm looking at the tides. I think it starts about six thirty or seven o'clock. So it's actually oh, it's a school night, but it starts early enough. So who should come? Is it a family event? Definitely, definitely. Uh, we'll be there with our six-year-old, and um, and I think the, the neat thing about these nights is, yeah, multi-generational sharing. You know, like just that that thing of understanding that uh, that that experience of being lit up by the ocean when you're a little kid is just the same when you're in your seventies and you're in your eighties. And and I think um, I think yeah, the broad range of speakers and story and like I said, film and music is is going to be something for everyone and something I think where where I think we'll be able to switch on the grey matter in between the ears with some of the Western science but then 
a lot of our, I think, our hearts and our emotions will be stirred as well. It's um what well, I, I know many years you know been you've been involved in the cove you've been involved in you know mines on the water um that, oh, a bunch of really cool stuff over the years is it do you think we're getting through do you think it's connecting to people that we are part the ocean's part of us and we're part of the ocean and we just kind of need to be able to live alongside with it in a in a in a safe and sustainable way do you reckon it's getting through. I really think so. Even that you have that language then where you are speaking in that way to me is an indicator that that's the way. I remember back, yeah, say 10, 15 years ago with things like The Cove um, and other work with Sea Shep and whatnot, it was, it was a different type of conversation. It was a, a different time. I think uh, back then it was very much a diagnosis of issues was what most discussions were about. You know, we're doing exposés on issues, trying to illuminate the fact that um, we have a lot of ill relationships going on in the world. And so I think right now none of us uh, need to be told that anymore, really. I think we have all of the info we need to understand that there is, yeah, a lot of ill relationship going on between each other and between the living world. And, And really right now is the time to be implementing the course corrections, you know, the the putting in the the coordinates um, for our, our navigation systems and, and steering our ships around in a better direction. So I think that's what these sort of nights are about is is actually skill sharing and showing uh, each other that there are amazing community groups, there are amazing um, individuals working on. Um, course correction, working on healing and restorative actions, and that's what gets me really pumped. That's what keeps me buoyant. Is it's focusing on that, and that right now it does feel very different to say 10, 15 years ago in terms of a broader understanding that the oceans really need us to get our stuff together and start acting accordingly. You know, we love the ocean. Would we be treating something, someone that we love? the way we're currently treating the oceans, I don't think so. So I think it's just a matter of, of yeah, understanding what actions we have available to us and, and just hurrying up and getting busy with that. Yeah, brilliant. We've got um, <clears throat> we've got listeners all, all over the place now. You're not just in Melbourne, Melbourne on Wednesday night, but um, uh, you're in a few different places around the country as well. Yeah, yeah. So the next night we'll be in Sydney, uh, and that's really great. You know, each location is is a uh, specific local issues for people to zoom in on. You know, down in Melbourne um, and everywhere in that southeastern corner of Australia and south-facing corner of Australia, we have the, the very real threat of seismic testing, which is just a incredibly violent idea of techno- technology um, intruding upon the, the ocean. Uh, and so really that, that's what we're going to be discussing a lot um, in Melbourne and then in Sydney, you know, you got things like um, Operation Crayweed by, um, with Dr. Adriana Vergez, who's, who's replanting kelp forests and regenerating Sydney's waterways through through that system and that kind of work. And so I'm sure we'll be discussing that. Uh, and in each location, there is a, a local specific to zoom in on because, you know, we, we have a lot of discussion on the big picture of, of climate change and the big picture in the world. And, and for for me personally, that can get really overwhelming and I find it a, a bit vague when we communicate on that level. So I actually really um, appreciate when we zoom in and look locally, look specifically at, at the systems that we are a part of, that we're breathing in and out 
all day, every day, uh, and what we can do to better our relationship in that place. So, so that's going to be exciting in each location to be able to tap into people who are working really hard on that level and, and how we can all be a part of it and have a good time while doing it. And I think that's <laughs> a really a really big part of this. Is like you get friend, your friends for life. You you have moments that are so fun and meaningful and have a real depth to them and, and that's something to not be overlooked, you know, you've got to have a good time while you're doing this or, or burning up is not is um, is a real uh, potential. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Now, it's a free event. People can go to patagonia.com.au um, or just Google Protect Australia's Ocean for, for good. Um, and it's a free event um, Wednesday night in Melbourne. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Dave. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. No worries. Cheers. Dave Rastovich there, global sports activist for Patagonia. Wednesday night, the Capitol Theatre. Yeah, Get along brilliant. there. I've got my um, my ticket. They are, as we said, free, but you do need to register to get yes. along there. And it is kid-friendly. Um, kicks off around 6.30 or 7. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I like to play um, super long underwear, particularly in winter for the dive report, because like that's what you know Cara and Myra have to wear, you know, when they're out of the cold water. But Myra is way up north; she is in Stradbroke Island. Hey, good morning. Oh, sorry, Cara. Good morning. I was say, how are you? Cara on the block. <laughs> Good morning, all. How are you? Very well. Good. Hey, now you have been slowly making your way up the coast and have seen nothing but sharks. Is this right? Uh, are you a bit overseeing grey nurses? I am. I've done lots of dives with grey nurses, but I've come up to Stradbroke Island to try and see the manta rays because that season's starting now. So I'm off for two dives out in the 23 degree water today. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> hey, sorry, 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 the line's breaking up, Cara. We can't, we can't hear. Well, we, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Cara, before we go any further, um, grey nurses, you've seen lots. That's good news in it and is. of itself. Yes. Yes, and it's great to see the protection of them around the little islands from Wolf Rock down to Julian Rocks and around Stradbroke, which is, you know, their populations are coming back, which is awesome. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, the um, but let's get back to the twenty three degrees on the mantis. Um, and so when you when you dive with mantis off the north of Stratty, do you is it are they just in open water or are they hanging around kind of little bommies up there or what are they doing? I haven't been lucky enough to see them yet, but um, I've done two dives. But there's a, a cleaning station, so they're sort of coming to yes. get their you know their cleans. But yeah, they're, they're just hanging around, I guess. Um, I think they might breed here. I'm not 100 percent sure. I can probably give you more information on uh, after I've seen them. Once you've seen them, yeah. <laughs> hey, those yeah. cleaning stations. For those that don't know, manta rays. Um, what they do is, and for those that don't know, they're very, very large stingray-looking things, but they don't sting. Um, you know, eight to ten foot wingtip to wingtip, and they come in, and they, if you can imagine them, kind of flying through the the water, and then they rub themselves up against the top of, top of an emergent rock like a bommy or something, that's a cleaning station. It's amazing. So you're going to sit around on one of those and watch them? Pretty much, Um, yeah. And, you know, I guess with the cost of living crisis and everything going on now, we're travelling Australia a lot better and seeing all the amazing stuff in our own backyard, which is great. And it's a lot cheaper to come and see the manta rays here than to go off to Southeast Asia or wherever some other people are going. 
you know, I've travelled the world when I was younger and said I'd travel the world when I, I'd travel, travel Australia when I got older, so I guess you am. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and for those who don't know exactly where Stradbroke Island is, it's just oh, north yes, of Brisbane, point. isn't it? So really it's a road yeah. trip from, from Melbourne. Yeah. You don't need to get on a, a big carbon-producing aeroplane to get up there. <laughs> Um, yep, you can right. do that. <laughs> hey, now, technically, technically <laughs> Cara, it is the dive report for um, the main zone of where people are listening, which is in Victoria. Do you have any information? Because Dr Beach and I have absolutely no idea. Have you got any information about <laughs> I do. Look, oh, good idea. I, I, I keep zooming down and having a look often, but I zoom down and I often use windy. And it is that beautiful purple-blue colour, which means there is absolutely no wind in the bay, and it's looking like that for the most of the long weekend for you guys. Oh, light, light northerlies, yeah. if anything, but just flat, just make it perfect. So if that was the case, and you knew that, and you weren't about to get into 23-degree water <coughs> and dive with mantas, what would you suggest someone do down here on a weekend with those night northerlies? Oh, I think... Any of the dive sites around inside the bay, I'd consider a night dive even, probably. It's getting a bit warmer down there, isn't it? I do hear it's about 15 degrees still in the water, but that's warmer. <laughs> yeah, that's true, that is warmer. Um, it's coming off a low base, though, yeah. Take your pick. I mean, really, there's absolutely no wind. Apart from Flinders, there's a bit of a southerly coming across, I think, or easterly, sorry, um, southeasterly. Uh, yeah, get jump on the boats. Do whatever you want. <laughs> Meet up with your friends. Get, jump jump <laughs> off a pier down to Blegari, yeah. Rye Pier, yeah. any of those in the bay. Um, yeah. And a big shout-out to, can I just give a shout-out to Jordane from Melbourne Mermaids because she's taking people from around Australia who aren't Melbourne divers and showing them Melbourne diving at the moment. And, and she's pairing up buddies with everyone. So, you know, getting out there and making new friends and showing people from Australia our wonderful backyard of Melbourne. Brilliant, brilliant. Thanks so much, Cara. We, are, are you on a boat this morning out to the Mantas? Is that where you I am, but oh, not till 11.25, so that's, you know, <laughs> a reasonable hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we thank you very much for getting up extra hour earlier for the uh, for talk to us because we know that, you know, like it fades the curtains up there so they don't have daylight savings. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. I love it, love it. Hey, um, thanks for joining us, Cara. Excellent. Thank you. You guys have an awesome long weekend. You Thanks, too. Cara. See, See ya. ya. <laughs> Bye. Can't wait. I can't wait to hear about the manta rays. Oh, yeah. And, and how good is it to have a couple of dive reporters? We even get their names confused. We've got so I don't many know. There's so it's not many dive reporters. Cara. I know. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. There's ocean swimming everywhere. People, open water swimming. Uh, swimming, swimming. Swimming, swimming, swimming. <laughs> um, I was approached by a, a long-time listener to Radio Marinara, Dick Williams, during the week, um, chastising me a little bit that we don't have enough on mm, open it's, yeah, water no, swimming. It's and, you. Yeah, yeah, fair cop, fair <laughs> cop. Uh, so we have Dick on the on the blower, as it were. It's not, we're not um, Friday morning, Bixie, but, um, yeah, we have um, Dick Williams on the phone right now from Phillip Island. How are you going, Dick? Yeah, good day, Dr Beach. I'm going well. <laughs> You wanted to um, to talk about open water swimming, and I, I hear that you swim the rip, something that I've, I, you know, we, we're all aware of. Goodness boy, me. My goodness, what a challenge that would be. Uh, yes, I have swum the rip. I've swum it three times. It's not something you just pop out and do on any old day. Yeah, listeners, don't um, try this on your own without training or a bit yeah, of experience. Don't try, <laughs> don't try this at home unless you've done the appropriate training and, uh, and in fact, go with the organised group that uh, ripswim.com.au uh, organises, my good colleague Grant Seedley, 
Um, but yeah, no, the rip can be done. It's got to be uh, special occasions when the uh, the tidal stream is right and when the wind is right. You wouldn't probably do it today. There's a 20 knot. Uh, easterly howling uh, at South Channel Island at the moment, so probably not ideal today. But, uh, yes, uh, probably 700 people have gone across the rip um, with, with Grant. So, yes, it's a, it's a great thing. It's it's challenging, exciting, but it's also very safe as well once uh, if you've got the right day. And you, you've been doing this for a while, this, this, this um, open water swimming and, and, and giving the rip a go. What got you into it, Dick? Oh, well, I was born in Beau Morris, so I've had salt water in my veins. Bowie boy? Since I was a little, yeah, Bowie boy. Um, salt water in my veins, and you know, for a long time. I was a lifesaver down at Bowie, so always down by the beach. Summer was beach. Um, I kept the swimming up during my uni days, and swimming was really important for me when I was doing the PhD because it was uh, a way to unwind and unload. I, sh- I, should have and back, I should have announced you, introduced you as one of our more eminent fire ecologists, um, but yeah. th- that's another story we could get you on to that talk is about another that. Story. <laughs> that is another story, but anyway. Um, and so, yeah, during PhD days uh, down the bay, a great swim would be to go between uh, the, the piers at South Melbourne and Port Melbourne. Um, they're about a kilometre apart, so you do two laps of that, you've got a two-k swim under your belt. And then I moved to Darwin. Um, the ocean swimming in Darwin is sort of limited because of the reptiles. Yeah. <laughs> but it can be done. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great swim, the Fanny Bay Classic, which is a 2K, 2.5K swim across Fanny Bay in July each year. I've done that seven or eight times. But what really got me into the rip swimming was when my late wife was crook. And yeah. uh, somebody put the idea of doing the rip into my head. Uh, a year out, I started the training. It's a three-kilometre swim. You've got to be able to do it in about an hour, and a, you know, between an hour and an hour and a half. Um, so you've got to put in the training to do it. And uh, that, that again, can be a very distracting in a good way. Yes, it was very distracting in a good way because, you know, Bronwyn was, uh, was really ill. Uh, she passed away six years ago. Um, but it was uh, the camaraderie that came with meeting these mad people. And we, um, we have one of those mad people here in you, the studio with you us. You do, and uh, I met Don through Swimming the Rip, and, uh, you know, we've been mates uh, ever since, and uh, it was a, uh, a life-changing experience. And uh, the group of people that have swum the Rip I'm still really good mates with, you know, 30 or 40 of them. Yeah. And we swim together very, very regularly. So it's a, it's a great thing. And, and in the studio, before we go any further, we have, we have Don Riddington. I, I feel quite very privileged. Radio Marinara, 3 we have Don um, in the studio. And, Don, you have you've swung the rip many times, but you've also swum the English Channel. And, in fact, you are the oldest Australian to swim the channel, which you did in July 2013. And looking at you now, I mean, my goodness, I mean, what a fit human. <laughs> so, Don, welcome, welcome Don Riddington to Radio Marinara. Uh, thanks, Doc. Uh, perceptions can be deceiving. <laughs> <laughs> and so the oldest Australian to swim the English Channel in 2013, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but more recently, it, what, only four or five weeks ago, you were part of a relay team mm. of with five other blokes who did the same thing, and you broke a world record, didn't you? We did. A uh, six-man uh, relay team, and we've, uh, we took the world record for the oldest relay crossing of the English Channel, 
That's been ratified by the Channel Swimming and Piloting Federation, the governing body for the swim, and been forwarded to uh, Mr Guinness, and hopefully uh, we'll get in the Guinness Book of Records. As well. I, I know this is indelicate, but I'm interested. What was the average age of that group of six oh, swimmers? Numbers that Don Bradman would be proud of. <laughs> we had a total age of 464. <laughs> well, if you divide that by for, six. For it's... an average of 77.3, not oh, out. Goodness oh, me. Goodness. And, and, just, and, and you were at what age when you swam the channel in 2013, July 2013? Oh, just a young 68. Just a whippersnapper. <laughs> Fantastic. My God, and, and so many questions. We've got about five or six minutes. But I, like, can I ask? Can I oh, ask? All right, all right. Is it, like, what's it like to swim the English channel? Um... When we were departing in Australia and we still had the card that said, you know, tick uh, business or pleasure, (laughs) (laughs) it created a little problem. (laughs) But really the experience is fantastic. Um, You know, you stand on the beach, a bit like uh, Captain Matthew Webb 150 years ago, in pretty much the same kit but with the same anticipation and reservations um, and uh, you've, you've done the training and then it this would be on the beach on the English side of yeah, Dover on those right. lovely beach, sandy beaches yeah. where I think pebbles and rocks and mm-hmm. no sand and it's not just like a two or three hour swim is it no um, no <laughs> actually the last uh, three kilometres which is a one hour swim Took me four hours. Oh wow. my goodness! And, and this that, is... that's what this swim is about. And it doesn't matter whether you're real, whether you're swimming, uh, riding, doing your homework at, at school, or whatever it is. The last quarter is the finishing bit, and that's what it takes. And the, the total time for me for that swim, and bear in mind, I'm actually consider myself to be in the driftwood category you just keep swimming somewhere you're going to get washed up along the coast (laughs) it took me 19 hours and 45 minutes oh my goodness in the water but non-stop and the 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 neat part of that is that it coincided with my year of birth 1945 (laughs) And do you so in that nineteen hours? Are you allowed to say get up on the boat and have a cup of tea? Yeah, every yeah, hour or so? yeah. roast lamb, lunch, and a glass of red, day. perhaps. Mm. Uh, you, Clearly, you that's not true. Not allowed. You're not allowed to touch any person nor the boat in that time. And of course, no wetsuit. It's just bathers cap and goggles. Yeah. Um, bit, and bit, bit of, of grease. Bit of, bit of uh, well, not not like the old days. Uh, I actually put on about ten or twelve kilos of body fat. It's, it's a bit like doing a loan, isn't it? Like you, you go after in the wilderness and you, you might not eat for a while. So you <laughs> fat up first. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but we just had a little bit of Vaseline and lanolin mix in the armpits and crutch basically to stop the friction yeah. from oh, yeah. the salt. Yeah, yeah. Can I just check, so, so Don, if I'm understanding correctly, to train for this, you ate a lot. No, that's <laughs> you right. Sporting Perfect. event, you Perfect. basically fed you yourself eat, up. Anything you like. And a hell of a lot of swimming, I'd imagine. Uh, we think in about three years uh, from the time we booked the pilot, I did about um, 1,000 laps of the <sighs> marina. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And uh, we've got two minutes left on this. So many questions. Tides are a really big important thing, like swimming the rip. And you yeah. described to me before how we can think of the channel as being ten times the rip 
Um, it's about what around thirty k across or something. The English yeah, Channel. So the, the, the channel is thirty odd k. If it takes you nineteen hours to swim across, and you've got like three or four different tides in that time, pushing you, pushing you every and which way. Let's remember that the English Channel is the the busiest shipping channel in the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And when you take it, it to the um, relay situation, it's different again. Yeah, because the. The swim itself is uh, manageable, if you like, but um, getting on and off the boat becomes a challenge because we had a, a swell that never abated, so that, that's the hardest part. Now, don't forget, one of our number was a one week short of 81 years old. Yeah. The rest of us within a couple of swims of 80. And then it's 2.30 in the morning, the moon's set, and you're about to leave the only piece of light on the horizon and jump into the COLD water, because you're not allowed to use that word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then after your one-hour shift, you come back. Every, everything's a bit uh, chilled, and particularly the important parts of the feet, hands and fingers, and you find yourself treading water behind the boat and looking at uh, this ladder that's rising and falling a metre with the swell, <sighs> thinking of all the things that... Uh, the, the stories about old men and ladders. <laughs> you don't want to do a Molly Meldrum. <laughs> then then the, your, your challenge is really to lunge and coincide with that lunge with the ladder passing through your line of vision at water level. My God! So this is this is handing over the baton, as it were. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. And at that point, you're committed. And gentlemen, let me tell you that that is no time for a senior moment. <laughs> I can imagine, Don. It's been we, we've really got to go. This has been fantastic speaking with you. Oh, Love wow. to get you back on at some time in the future. As as with Dick Williams, um, who I um, I believe is still we can with hear us. laughing in the background. We can hear yeah, laughing in the background. Up to this, <laughs> but, but absolute pleasure speaking with you. So, Don Reddington, um, our very own. Um, Record holder as being part of the, um, the the six man relay team across the English Channel, and himself the oldest Australian to swim the English Channel back in 2013. Don, thanks for being with Radio Marinara. It's been great talking with you. Thanks very much, gents. Thank you. And Dick, uh, I think you're still there. Thank you. Yeah, still there. Cacking myself. He's, he's funny that way. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks, chaps. See you, Dick. Yeah, Absolutely brilliant. My goodness me. Uh, I don't know, Dr Beach, how we would... Uh, I wouldn't cope with that. Oh, I, 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 I can't swim 50 metres, I don't think. We're going to play a little bit of a break and then we'll be back with a bit about environmental coastal law. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. During, uh, I caught, during the week, I caught up with Professor Jan MacDonald, who is a Professor of Environmental and Climate Law at the University of Tasmania, now for something completely different. Um, and um, I was at a climate change, com- uh, sorry, coast-to-coast conference this week in Newcastle. And look, we, 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 um, we, when we did this interview, Dr Beach, we tried to hide from people in a side room, but you'll hear delegates came in and overran us at one point <laughs> a couple of difficult. times in can, there. Can, yeah, can yeah. be difficult. And also, we, 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 
apologies for the popping. We were huddled over the microphone to let the delegates, um, you know, try and put in the background. Anyway, the reason I wanted to talk to her is that we've talked, for, you know, for climate change on Radio Marinara and sea level rise for more than 25 years, and the science has been clear for years. But how does the law reflect the science, or does it? You know, that's kind of the key question. And so Professor Jan McDonald has been studying coastal adaptation law for a while around Australia and has come to some some conclusions about it. So let's just go to it now. A lot is changing due to climate change and the law is not immune from that change. So Jan, how is the need for or the requirement for coastal adaptation actually being made in the law? Is it being made in the law? Well, particularly in the coastal space, we're seeing really significant progress in states like Victoria, where you have a new coastal management framework that expressly refers to the need for planning and decision-making to take account of future coastal hazards and current coastal hazards, but uh, expressly recognising the need for adaptation to climate change to um, achieve greater resilience, whatever that might be. I'm going to come back to that resilience question, but part part of the problem, in a way, with climate adaptation is the uncertainty. You know, there's so much uncertainty about exactly what happened. Can the law legislate for uncertainty? The law can't legislate for uncertainty, but it can certainly uh, enact frameworks that allow decision makers that make to make decisions that account for uncertainty, and. It's not something that we've done particularly well in the past, in part because we place a very high value on the protection of private property rights. And so when someone has planning approval to do a development, we think they should be allowed to do that forever and ever. And what we're starting to see is more flexible mechanisms that recognise the reality of... uh, an unknown future where approvals may still be available legally but where the biophysical reality of the coastline no longer makes that development make any sense at all. And these changes, I understand from your work, is is only in the last decade or two that this has been happening. And is it everywhere around Australia? Is Is it in all the jurisdictions? Is it nationally? Every jurisdiction has some form of coastal hazard planning, but uh, New South Wales and Victoria have definitely got the most sophisticated regimes that expressly refer to climate-induced coastal hazards. Other jurisdictions just talk about erosion or inundation, but they don't necessarily uh, make that express connection to climate change. Uh, so that those elements of adaptiveness are best reflected in Victoria and New South Wales. So hats off to those two jurisdictions. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like, you know, uh, you know, is this one of the problems with our federation? Is that you know, it seems like this is the kind of thing you might want to have one law for around a country, you know, is, or am I just being naively non-lawyer? <laughs> The reality is that we are never going to have a national law relating to land use planning. It is inherently a state activity, but it would certainly be helpful to have some some nationally consistent standards around some of the science. So, for example, every jurisdiction in Australia has a different sea level rise planning benchmark, and New South Wales doesn't even have a statewide planning benchmark, so every local government 
has a different planning benchmark. So there are things that the Commonwealth could be doing and offering guidance on and, in fact, mandating that it doesn't. Uh, but I think that in expecting coastal planning at the local government level to suddenly become nationally consistent is probably unrealistic. And to be honest, I'm not convinced that that's desirable, given that every bay, every beach, every headland is going to have its own unique set of um, physical and hydrological pressures and risks but the communities that live around that and the biodiversity that is part of that area are also going to be unique and have their own vulnerabilities and features that also need to be part of that adaptation planning. So adaptation is inherently local. What we need are uh, some nationally and state consistent standards for what the outcomes are we want to achieve across the board. And, And from your work, we haven't got that yet. We certainly have nothing nationally, uh, and even at the state level, you know, there's very significant differences. Uh, And I would say that I think it's a really difficult thing. You ask one person who's a beachfront property owner what good adaptation looks like, and it's going to be quite different from the community that lives on the floodplain behind the beach uh, in the low-lying coastal areas, and it's going to be different again for the person who's... Um, you know, a, a birdo who really cares about the threatened status of the hoodie. Mm. So let's pick up the, your comment about, you know, there are some jurisdictions that don't even have a, a sea level benchmark. Um, let, let's, let's note that the ocean will rise roughly similarly. <laughs> you know, I mean, there'll be locally different things, but the ocean will come up at roughly the same rate. And so the science is kind of a bit fixed. And I'm interested in this. It takes a little while from science to get into law. And then does it again take a little while from law to get into practice? And is there a rule of thumb about how long that takes? There's no rule of thumb about how long it takes for science to get into law because, you know, obviously that depends a lot on what the area is. You know, gene technology is going to be a very different beast from, mm. you know, climate science. Um, and you've got a compounding problem in relation to land use planning because uh, a development approval that's an uh, application that's submitted under an old regime, even if it hasn't been decided, will still be subject to determination under that old regime. So you've got all these inherited rights and uh, existing use rights in respect of property that mean that they carry a lot of legal baggage from previous systems. And it's only when you're doing something completely new that you will be subject to the new constraints. But, for example, in Victoria and in New South Wales, you've got these uh, coastal management planning processes that are being done at the local level now And they're going to be expensive. They're going to need really strong community consultation processes. That always takes time. And so it's not just a matter of incorporating the science into the law. It's taking the community with you on that science journey so that you can arrive at a a, a plan that that people have buy-in on. 
So I'm interested in this bringing the community along because it, it's interesting to bring the community along with the science. Do, do you know, was I need to bring the community on with the law in a way that, like, okay, here's how the science is being played out in the legal system and this is why these decisions will be made this way, which might not actually, you might not like. I mean, do you, do, do you need to bring the community along with the science first, then the law, or how do, do you do it simultaneously? Or I don't know whether you can actually separate those out, yeah. but I would also make the observation that I think it's really hard to separate, to, to, to understand the community as this single this single thing um, and what are the difficulties that we have in coastal adaptation planning in particular is that very powerful private interests have greater political voice than the the more generally held wider community interests because they're wealthier interests, they represent the protection of private property rights and so you often have a skewing of what the community if I can put it in, in scare quotes uh, what the community wants uh, it's not necessarily reflective of the wider coastal community um, I, Let's circle back to resilience. You talked about resilience earlier and you, you've, you know, there's a, there are multiple definitions of resilience and so resilience is the word is making its way into law and does it have a legal definition? It has no legal definition either in just general understanding of the law or in the way it's being used in the statutes and I think that's potentially problematic because it can end up being like sustainable or sustainability it's going to be this generic buzzword that anyone can sort of you know lock into and and hang their hat on why is that a problem though like if we all kind of generally understand that it means something you know building a bit of adaptive capacity why, why does it matter if the law is a bit blurry uh, i'm not sure that we do all agree on what it actually means <laughs> yeah. um uh, you know the scientists that that first developed this concept of socio-ecological resilience talk about uh, the retention of a system state um, that can change without losing its fundamental characteristics. And I think that that's probably what we're generally talking about in relation to resilience. But we need an agreement on what those fundamental desirable system states are that we don't want to lose. Sometimes you've got an undesirable system state and you actually want to shift into a new regime. But I think for most of our coastal areas, we want to preserve the things that we value about it. And that's a separate community conversation. Uh, The thing that concerns me a little bit about the use of resilience is that some people criticise it as being um, code for government offloading responsibilities onto private individuals. That community resilience is actually all about this idea that it becomes all about private responsibility. And I agree that in respect of protecting private property, that might be a really important priority. But the coast has so many important public values, both recreational, cultural and, of course, environmental that we can't leave the resilience piece to a purely, dare I say it, neoliberal paradigm. I think the next session is about to start. We're being overrun by people chatting in the background. Thank you so much, Professor Jan McDonald, for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, Anthony. 
There we go, Dr. Beach. Gosh, we've had a, a diverse program this morning. Thank well, you very much to Dr. to Professor Jan McDonald from the University of Tasmania. Thanks to Don Riddington and to Dick Williams for telling us about their um, their, their long distance swimming. And Dave Rastovich joining us for, to, from Patagonia, well, representing Patagonia, Protect Australia Ocean for Good. What a diverse program! Love it, love it. Hey, next week, uh, I to be honest. I'm not entirely sure what's on, but there's heaps of really cool stuff. It'll be it'll be great. It'll be brilliant. Um, and thank you very much, Dr. Beach. It's been uh, and it's thank been you, joyous Dr. 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 Poxel. <laughs> See ya. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.